This is Inside the Times. I'm Stephen Hiltner. All the news that's fit to print. Who's to say exactly what that means? And as one audience member asked at our recent Insider event, will we be updating our slogan to reflect the fact that many of our readers no longer read us in print? Should we make it all the news that's fit to publish? A big part of what we do here at The Times is, of course, to cover the news. But nowadays, there are a million ways to tell a story, which means that part of our job is also to decide how we're going to deliver the news. And news travels fast. Decisions about what to cover and how to cover it, and how much coverage a given story deserves, are often made very quickly. On a recent evening, we sat down with Dean Baquet, the executive editor of The New York Times, and Jim Rutenberg, The Times' media columnist. They discussed the nature of The Times' coverage, the evolution of The Times' newsroom, and much, much more. Let's get started. Dean pays us to say that he's cool. And, <laughs> and he is, actually, even though I shouldn't tell. It'll go to his head. But Dean has a really great bio because he worked his way up through this business and doesn't forget what it's like to be a reporter and I don't know if everyone knows his background, but he started at the Times-Picayune. Actually, the New Orleans States item, uh, the afternoon paper, and, and then, then the Picayune. And then Chicago Tribune, <clears throat> then where he won a Pulitzer, then the New York Times. And he left us and became a folk hero in our business when he was at the LA Times, where he had to defend against publishers' attempts to cut the staff. Um, he quit the paper over that. That was a big deal, and interestingly, because now we're all facing much worse pressures and um, came back here to be Washington bureau chief, where he was my first, uh, he was, I, we first got to know each other. He was my boss there. And now he's the big cheese, as we say around the newsroom. <laughs> Did I leave anything out? No, that's good. That's good. I like the cheese. I like the big cheese part. Cheesy. I didn't say cheesy, <laughs> but he can be sometimes, but that's okay. We kid him. But maybe we should start out um, talking about just what today. Here we are. We're in the middle of this big campaign. Um, the New York Times is under such a microscope. And... You've got a Hillary health story. You've yeah. got pressure on how we de- decide how much to cover that versus Trump. And so, like, just today, how are we deciding to cover yeah. the health? We're at that moment in any presidential campaign where there's tremendous pressure, tremendous fly-specking. I think every major candidate has decided we're sort of out to get them. But every decision you make has, has huge impact. So when I happened to be in um, in Cambridge at a, at a program at the Neiman Fellowship at Harvard when I got a, an email from the... Um, from the weekend editor saying that Hillary Clinton had just collapsed on her way into her car. And it was, your first reaction is, of course this is a good story, but you have to know more about it, right? I mean, you cannot go nuts if it turned out she tripped. And people will scrutinize you heavily, but mainly you have to cover the story. We ended up leading the print New York Times with it on the website because I do think it was a good story. It was an important story. Neither candidate has provided as much about their health as um, as some other candidates in past elections. So it remains a good story even today. We did another story today in which we tried to explain and understand when her staff knew she had pneumonia. What do you do when you're a presidential candidate when you get pneumonia? If I get pneumonia, I take two weeks off, get in bed. She cannot take two weeks off. This campaign is in the final week. She can't do that. Meanwhile, I think there's some criticism of them. Some of it, I think, justified, frankly, that um, that they didn't come right out and say what happened. 
which hurts her in particular, partly because one of the criticisms of her, whether you whether you buy it or not, is that she and the people around her can be sort of protective in their bubble. He, meanwhile, I'm not sure whether people tied his hands up so that he couldn't do anything on his on his Twitter account because I would have thought it was irresistible, but he didn't. He didn't. He didn't say anything. So. And then another story that I had not had a chance to read before I came up, um, but we were working on, Susan Chira, who is one of the one of my deputy executive editors, has had the idea of putting a couple of people just writing on the subject of gender as we near the possibility of electing the first woman president. As I left to come upstairs, Susan Dominus, who's just a terrific reporter for The Times, was working on a story I will just sort of vaguely describe as gender and the reaction people had and women had, in particular when she stumbles physically. I found the idea that they didn't immediately report to their press corps that she had pneumonia on Friday to be like it offended me. But you mean that she, that they didn't immediately say? Yeah, did that bo- it doesn't seem to bother you quite as much. But you've got the thirty thousand foot like you. You know, I, I mean, I'm beyond the sort of being of, offended. My own, my own. Instinct when I mean I mean when I look back before this at my email exchanges all weekend with Ian Fisher who's the weekend editor, and my first thought was there was already the beginning of political reporters starting to assess what happened, and at a certain point I sent a note in and saying you know actually I'm not that interested in assessing what it meant until we know what the hell happened, and it took a long time to know what the hell happened. Is that like because you saw on Twitter the kind of the the, with the sort of conventional wisdom hardening, with or you were seeing in the building? No, it was just I was actually out of town. I was like actually sitting in a hotel room. Um, one of the tricky things about leading political coverage, I think, is that, and I actually do not think this is a sin of the times. I think this is a sin of, of to be frank, a lot of social media and a lot of a lot of new media, to immediately try to tell people the meaning of things, the larger meaning of things, before we actually know what happened. And I think while we have a responsibility to analyze too, of course we do. I think because of the resources we have, our greater responsibility is to actually find out what happened. This is before we knew she had pneumonia. I think you can go too far before you know if she stumbled in. Am I outraged that politicians wait too long to tell us about their illnesses? I think both of these candidates owe the American public a much, much fuller portrait of their health. Um, I mean, they're, they're relatively older candidates. You have to give John McCain credit. He released, you know, probably the potentially the, the sickest candidate in recent times because of his war experience, and he released 2,000 pages. And I, I think, I, I don't, I'm not editorializing. I think it would be better for coverage if they told us more. I mean, that's the thing about, um, and I've written about this a bit this year, but the idea of editorializing, I mean, there's pressure on us from you all to put pressure on them to right. release these right. medical records and like what more can we do because you can't write that story every right. day. There's a limit to how much pressure we can put. And I was I, I was on a panel this weekend with um, two very disparate journalists, um, both of whom I, I've known for a long time, Bob Woodward and Laura Poitras. Name dropper. <laughs> <laughs> Laura was, you know, saying that one of the responsibilities of the press is to, in this case, we were talking about Trump's tax returns, force him to release his tax. And Bob Woodward said, I don't even know how you do that. What are we supposed to do, like show up and, you know, 
armed and well, you did. I mean, you can write stories, and you do write stories, and you can point out what they have not done. But I think there's a limit to how much pressure you can actually put on them. I think. And it should here be noted that Dean had said at this panel <laughs> that he would go to jail to get Trump's tax returns. <laughs> Laura Poitras asked, um, she can be a bomb thrower, which I, which I really like. Um, and she's worked with us a lot. She asked Woodward and I, if, if you had Trump's tax returns, would you publish them? And I said, absolutely, in like two seconds. And she said, don't you, what if your lawyers said you would go to jail for publishing them? And I said, I don't care. It's like this is, there's no more awaited and worth observing document about Donald Trump right now than his tax returns. Right, and Woodward, uh, what was his? Um, he agreed to, but I said it first. <laughs> <laughs> That's on the record. So how many presidential campaigns have you been a journalist through? When I was at the Chicago Tribune, I was never a political reporter the way the way Jim was a terrific political reporter, really was, um, and White House reporter. Past tense. <laughs> I, was, I was always, because I was an investigative reporter, I was always the guy who was assigned to dig up stuff on the candidates for profiles. And the first ones I did were, my first, first memory was Lloyd Benson, who was, who, who was running for vice president. I remember. And the same year I did, I spent a month in um, Indiana digging into Dan Quayle and the Quayle family's finances. I, I was never the guy who went to conventions. I did go to the Republican convention in Houston, but that's because I was working on another investigative story. This is probably the, I guess this is the third campaign, if you count my time at the LA Times, where I actually was involved in overseeing campaign. This is remarkable. This is unlike That's what I was gonna ask anything we've the, seen. There's a unique pressure that we have at the Times, which we should get to, but in general, the pressure yeah. on the media, have you ever seen it this intense and no. scrutinized? Two things have happened which are just remarkable. First off, Donald Trump as a presidential candidate breaks all the rules of presidential candidates. I mean, he just does. I mean, he... He says things that are patently not true. He doesn't really have a campaign organization. He, it's, I've never seen anything like it. He's running it like you would run a, you know, the build up to a movie premiere. And that challenges all of our rules and assumptions about political coverage and has, and has I think, thrown us a little bit for a loop. Add to that the fact that technology, each presidential election, since the arrival of the internet has turned up the volume uh, and made everything faster and made criticism easier and just transformed everything. It is really hard to keep up with. There was a, every once in a while there's a controversy over stories we take down or stories that stay up online too long, just to give you a, a taste. So I, I, I dropped out of college when I was, um, 19 to become a, a reporter. So this is like over 40 years ago. Here's what happened when you cover. I, I remember for an afternoon paper covering a trial. And an afternoon paper was the closest thing there is was to the internet in my era. You'd go to the courthouse. They would take a break at 1 o'clock. You would call in off the top of your head that morning's events. You'd go back to the courthouse. And then we also had a morning edition. So then you'd go back to the office. You'd eat a sandwich. 
You'd maybe make a couple of calls to um, to the defense lawyers or the prosecutors to get them to explain some point of law that maybe you didn't understand. You'd have a cup of coffee. And then you'd start writing at 7 o'clock. And if you wrote fast, you'd finish, you know, by 7.40. And the copy desk would ask its questions. And you were leaving, you know, tired at 8.15 because you would have started at like 6 or 7 in the morning. But it really was, for as much as you were working, a relatively leisurely day. Here's how that's been transformed. If the president has a press conference at 10 a.m., the expectation of the reader is that he or she knows what the president said at 10.05. And in fact, you get impatient if you don't know at 10.05. And in fact, you actually expect us to live blog it so that you know everything he says every step along the way. And then, so that gets you through 10.30 when the press conference ends. So then by 10.40, you want the Republican reaction. By 11 o'clock, you want us to have done quite a bit of truth squatting to see if what the president said was true. By noon, you have written about three versions of that story. And it continues through the evening. And then at a certain point, late in the afternoon, late in the evening, you or a colleague has to come up with a fresh take for the print New York Times the next morning. I will say this, we make more mistakes. We also, sometimes if you see a story that hasn't changed, there was a controversy because one of our stories about Trump didn't change to reflect this volatile immigration speech he gave. It didn't change because we screwed up. <laughs> because that, that clock that I just described, we didn't get there fast enough. That happens. But I'll say one thing, since I owned up to the fact that news organizations make more mistakes, not huge ones, but more of them, partly because it's in real time and it's inevitable. But what I will say is what we have gotten in return in terms of how much more creative and imaginative journalism is, is tremendous. I mean, you are... You are don't miss it because it's important. You are living in a golden age of journalism. You may be watching great news organizations like the New York Times and the Washington Post struggle with their finances, but I can walk into the newsroom tomorrow and I can assign a video. For somebody like me who started in journalism 40 years ago to be able to assign a video, the most important piece of, of campaign journalism we've done this season, or one of the four or five most important, was the video from the back of the Trump rally, which got, I don't know how many, it's a tens it's of... 18 million on Facebook and several million more off our site, so like 22 at least, I think. And it was a stunning piece of journalism. And for somebody like me who has spent his entire career in print, to be able to do that, to be able to have that as part of the report that I build every day... You know what? If we make a few more mistakes because of the necessity of speed, but what we get in exchange is a way of telling stories that is just unimaginably different than anything, it's worth it. Which brings me to... Um, more mistakes? I, think I owned <laughs> no, up to us. I don't know. I live in mortal... I mean, we all live in mortal fear of mistakes, but yeah. my first story I ever did, everything in it was wrong. 
but it was for the West Side <laughs> Spirit. I think the, it was about the privatization of the parks that never took place. I, everything in it was wrong. So I'm like, I stay up all night. You can ask my wife who's here, like worrying about mistakes, but which we all do more than you all think. But what Dean's getting at here is um, he's overseeing a transformation of this newspaper. And I'm curious in this crowd, are most of you all print readers more than online readers? Like, can I see like a show of hands or who's more print than? Wow, both. Both. So what <clears throat> Dean's trying to do is make our digital conversion, and it's going to mean if you want more video, then maybe you have fewer classic writers or classically yeah. trained reporters. And so I'm curious if you could walk all of us, myself included, through what this newsroom's gonna look like in terms of like what's gonna be the most different thing sure. for these readers. So I've been the executive editor for, I guess, two and a half years. It is a dramatically transformed newsroom, I would argue with a lot more transformation to come. First off, you have to own up to the fact that now most people read us on the phone. That has automatically got to change the way you present stories. If most people read you on the phone, by the way, just for the record, I'm not one of the, I always used to have um, arguments with um, relatives in New Orleans and, and various older cousins, and they would say, isn't it terrible that everybody's reading you on the phone? Nah, it's great. More people read the New York Times today than ever. My job, my mission, and I'm a, and I'm a mission-driven editor, my mission is to be read. If I'm not read, or if I'm only read by a handful of people, what's the point? My mission is to explain government, hold the powerful accountable to as many people as possible. So... If you believe that more people read you on the phone, it's got to change the way you write. You can write long, beautiful stories, and we do that. But you also have to be able to write shorter stories. You have to be able to do videos. The New York Times of the future, um, and we're getting there. We're a few years away. We'll have a big video unit, which I've, actually, which I've increased the size of. It will have the ability to do graphics in a completely different way. Um, which is why I elevated the people who run graphics and higher levels at the New York Times. It will be less dependent on the architecture of print, which means that if a desk, want, if the national correspondent who lives in Los Angeles decides that the story of Los Angeles is more of a cultural story than a national political story, he will be free to tell the story that way because he won't have a national editor who's demanding that he fills pages with a certain kind of story to tell. Um, it's just going to be very different, and it's going to take years, and it's going to evolve. My goal is not to build a New York Times newsroom that just looks one way and that's built for the phone. If we had done that for the desktop, we would be scrambling now, because the desktop, <laughs> here's what's funny, the two most sustaining ways to read journalism now, devices, are print, which is going to outlast the desktop, and the phone. So I have to be flexible. Right. But now, um, as you kind of make your way into the future, we're shedding some journalists, and yeah. we're just now did a bunch of buyouts, and a lot of names that a lot of this crowd has known for, in some cases, decades, is leaving, and do you feel like you do lose part of the soul and the DNA of the newspaper with some of those big names walking out the door. I'm going to turn 60 this year. And I know you thought I was... <laughs> you thought I was... <laughs> no. 
when I looked at the list of the people who took the buyouts and I went around to some of the toasts in the newsroom, my class of reporters who were hired on Metro in the 90s were the people taking the buyouts. Wow. Yes, you lose institutional memory. But if you walk around the newsroom of the New York Times and you visit the Washington Bureau and you visit the foreign staff and you do what I did yesterday, was to, which is to sit down for 45 minutes with Alyssa Rubin, who won the Pulitzer Prize for foreign reporting last, last year and who has covered Afghanistan and Kabul ever since she worked for me at the LA Times. There is so much soul. There is so much mission-driven. The soul of the New York Times is very much intact. There are more departures now than ever before because the newsroom's complexion is changing. But I would not worry about the New York Times losing its soul. Like how big are the layoffs going to be? <laughs> Every colleague on the third and second floor made me ask that. <laughs> here's, here's what I have said, because my goal is to be as transparent as possible. What I've said is the New York Times will be smaller. For economic reasons and for other reasons, I'm happy to explain. It will be smaller. Because the New York Times, at its present size, was built for a newspaper that, was, that had a completely different architecture. Many sections, a time when, when newspapers had profit margins that were just obscene. A couple of days ago, the, um, one of the members of the Sulzberger family, Dan Cohen, died. And in his obit, and I remember Dan from when he was here before, he was the ad director when the New York Times became the first news organization to register over a billion dollars in advertising sales. I don't think any news organization in the world right now has a billion dollars in advertising sales. So we will be smaller. We will still be robust. We'll still be big. I actually don't know how much smaller. There's some things out of my hands. Right now, we have a fairly robust economy. I don't know what the economy is going to look like next year. I'm trying to recraft and re-engineer the newsroom in my mind in a way that preserves as many jobs as possible. The newsroom's population is going to have to change. I mean, we now have a 30, 40-person video unit, right, that, we didn't, that didn't exist before. I have to figure out a way to pay for that. The layoffs will be portrayed by, especially the critics of this place, as a quote-unquote, failing New York Times, as a certain politician has put mm -hmm. it. But how much, but it's not all because of economic, it's right? Not. Some of it's to rearrange, as we've been talking about, it's rearrange not. for the future, right? It's not. I mean, we, again, I'm mission-driven. I want, I believe that the New York Times has to reach people and as many people as possible, and it's got to have true impact. I can't do that without video. By the way, the arrival of video for a, an editor of my generation is, is just transformational. So how do I build a big, robust video unit with fewer resources? I have to change the complexion of the paper. So not all cuts in, the, in one part of the newsroom are just to cut costs. They're also to free up money to do different things. I will say one thing. One reason that I left the LA Times was because I got, a f I got into a fight over budget cuts. That was different. They were trying to up their stock price. They were making mindless cuts, totally mindless, because they wanted to, they thought they could maintain a certain profit margin. 
um, and they were wrong. They were kidding themselves. The, the difference here, the family that controls the New York Times has, <laughs> I don't even think people have embraced it enough, have chosen not to be stupendously wealthy by not selling their stock at the highest point, by going some years without dividends, and by pouring their profits back into the institution when they were great profits. This is different. And that the next generation of the Sulzberger family right. is, is coming up. And do you expect the family to maintain control of this newspaper for I think, more than that generation? Even? I, think, I think it is vital to journalism, and certainly vital to the New York Times, but vital to journalism, that the New York Times be independent and controlled by the Ox Sulzberger family. It's the only family. I worked for the LA Times and knew Otis Chandler and spent time with him before he died. This is the last one. The greatest newspapers in the world were controlled by families. The worst newspapers in the world were also controlled by families, by the way, <laughs> for those of us who worked in small town newspapers. But the great newspapers, the Bancroft family when they controlled the journal, the, the Chandler family when they controlled um, the LA Times. The Adelsons? The, the, the Adelsons? No, not them. <laughs> the Bingham family, when they controlled the Louisville Courier-Journal. The only ones left is the, Sol the Ox Sulzberger family. And it's no coincidence that they put out the best newspaper in the world. For the record, Twitter, Carlos Slim is a is an investor. He owns the whole thing. No, I'm just saying, <laughs> no, no. I've never met Carlos Slim. Or He's an investor. I've never met him. He doesn't influence coverage. I really have never met him. Right, because I think, you know, there's been a thing on Twitter that comes up sometimes if Trump supporters per se think we're being too tough on him, it's because we're controlled by Carlos Slim. Uh, who, who really hasn't. I told, I told Jim this funny story. I have a 27-year-old son. And um, for those of you who have kids that age, one of the constant battles is to keep looking for things you can do with them. Unfortunately, my 27-year-old son is a jock. And the, the list <laughs> You're of a jock, aren't you? Do... You were flexing <laughs> your muscles. He literally flexed his muscles for me before we came in here. So I started lifting weights with him, and we would lift weights together. Then he took up golf. So I was in Mexico a couple weeks ago, and I decided to take a golf lesson. So I'm taking a golf lesson from this guy in Mexico, and he turns to me and he says, you work for the New York Times? And I said, yeah. Carlos Slim owns you, right? And I said, No. <laughs> Right, because, because the family, the, the stock that the family owns is controlling They're stock, control, and that's, that's right. it. That's so right. the fam, just for the record, the that's family. Right. And what about some things that are going to go away? We're discussing, the New York Times has had its own polling unit for 50 or 60 years. That yeah. may go away now, right? And yeah. I have not made a final decision, um, but, but we're talking about it. I, I guess the, the question that I started to ask myself, I have to find the money to do some of the some things we never could do for the phone, like video. And the only way I can do that is by finding some things to turn off that don't hurt the core of the times. I sort of started to think that there is some great polling by independent operations, whether it's Pew or others, and I wasn't convinced that as good as our polling unit was, that it was vital to, to overall coverage. And they're great, by the way. Um, so I'm going to wait till after the campaign, but it's one of the things I'm thinking about. And that's like um, we just had a small controversy about losing local restaurant reviews and local theater reviews, right? And with that, suburban restaurant and theater reviews. Just for the record, they were not 
they were not quite full-bodied reviews. We'll still do, you know, restaurant. They they were sort of listings. They were um, listings of things to do in the suburbs. But again, making these decisions, a I guess what saves saves jobs, but also allows us to do yeah. more and new yeah. stuff. I don't think anybody quite understands, for example, how much if you just take something like September 11th. How what that did to the budgets of news organizations like the New York Times, it it transformed our budgets. It started for me when I was the editor of the Los Angeles Times. We have bureaus in places we never had bureaus before. We have a house in Kabul with guards and a full-time staff. We have bureaus in the Middle East that didn't seem necessary before September 11th. When I was a reporter spending time in Washington, the CIA was a backwater beat. I now have a terrorism reporter in Washington, a CIA reporter in Washington, a Justice Department reporter in Washington, and an FBI reporter in Washington. All of that coincided with a period in which newspaper revenue was dropping. So we have to figure out a way to do all that stuff, which I think is the most important thing we do. And what I would say to people who are disappointed that we don't provide as many suburban restaurant and theater reviews, I'm going to make the case that this is more important to our mission, even though I wish I could do everything. To switch gears a little bit, you're the first black editor of the New York Times in its 100-whatever history. Mm-hmm. Do you have, in, in terms of your own mission, diversifying the newsroom is a major goal? Mm-hmm. And, and in that same context, do you think... You need a, you'd like a more diverse newsroom too for stories like Black Lives Matter, which, yeah. you know, it's it's I I, I think about this a lot because it's a question I never was never asked until I became I wasn't until I became the executive editor of the New York Times, and of course it changes the way I look at the world. One one reason, by the way, that I believe we're in a golden age of journalism is so I grew up in New Orleans in a working class um, family. I had access to two newspapers, the afternoon paper and the morning paper in New Orleans, which at that time were awful. Um, This is in 1960s Louisiana. That same kid now, assuming he has a computer, can read The Guardian. He might not be able to read all of the New York Times, but if he's adept enough at managing his way through social media, he can read enough of it. He can figure out a way to read a little bit of the post. He can go on the website of the Metropolitan Museum of Art and see beautiful reproductions. So there's no question that I think my open-mindedness and my willingness to sort of toss traditions that maybe are not as valuable is influenced by my background and my upbringing. I also think that you can't cover the world if you don't look a little bit like the world. I don't think that's just a sense of justice. I think some of it is justice. But I think the reality is the greatest stories that newspapers missed in the 1950s and 60s were stories. I mean, the greatest story newspapers missed in the 1940s was the migration of blacks from the south to the north, which is the most transformational domestic migration in history. And newspapers missed that. I had this conversation with Gene Roberts, who used to be managing editor here. They missed it because they didn't have anybody, nobody on their staffs knew anybody migrating. The second great story that newspapers missed 
was just how much, how dramatically the workplace had transformed because women were in the workplace and because women were making demands in their, in the, in their lives and in the lives of their families. And I think we also were slow to that story because we didn't have any women. I don't think you can cover the world unless you look enough like the world to see, to find stories. And do you think we're getting there? I mean, where do you feel our progress? I think we're, I think we're much closer. Um, I think we have some big holes. And one of my pet peeves is religion. I grew up in a Catholic family, and I was an altar boy. And I remember when I was national editor of the New York Times in the 1990s, one of my deputies was the late Robin Toner, who was just a terrific reporter and editor who, who died too young. And she also had grown up in a Catholic family. And Robin walked in to the newsroom one day with ashes on her forehead for Ash Wednesday. And I thought, I have not seen ashes on anybody's forehead <laughs> since I was nine years old. And it made me realize we don't, we're a, because we're in New York, which is not the most religious place in the world, I don't think we quite have a grasp on religion. And I think we still look at religion in people's lives as though it's a little bit this sort of weird thing. As a result of that, I think we missed the rise of very conservative Christians in the South. Right, and now, do you think that um, we've missed, kind of slightly off topic, but in the same realm, do you think we missed some of the anger that's welled up to propel Trump? Yeah, I think partly because I suspect I'm talking to a group of people who care enough about the New York Times to sort of come up on our very intelligent but slow elevators to come. I'll be very honest. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be very honest with you. I reject the criticism that we did not write tough about Donald Trump and that's why he's nominated. I don't, I mean, I've edited myself too many hard stories about Trump. I think we did miss the story, everybody in the press, I think we did miss the story of just how much anger and anxiety there was in the country as a result of the financial crisis. And I think that that Anger and anxiety helped to fuel the rise of Bernie Sanders. And I think one reason we didn't quite get that Bernie Sanders was really going to be a, you know, a, a special candidate who would attract a lot of votes was because we didn't quite have our finger on the pulse of that. And I think we all you know, probably laughed at Donald Trump a little bit too long because um, we didn't, I don't think we quite saw how much anxiety there was in the country. Now, it was hard to see. It's hard to find and see anxiety, right? You could send reporters out um, to coal country and people, and you'll find people are anxious. I think that it was the perfect storm of anxiety and a guy who knew exactly how to press the button of anxiety. I'm not even sure that people who were anxious quite knew how anxious they were until Trump came in and sort of quite knew how to press the buttons. I think that's the story we could, I wish... I wished if I could turn back the clock, I had told that story better. How do you decide, I mean, because Trump is such a phenomenon and, you know, he sucks up a lot of oxygen. Um, <laughs> I meant that metaphor. Uh, <laughs> no, he does. he does. He demands a lot of coverage, but you still have in Hillary Clinton a very complicated candidate as well. And how do you decide how to balance that, especially when you're being constantly pressured to you know, you're doing too, you're being too hard on Hillary. You're being too hard on Trump. Yeah. You guys are biased. I think you can tell I'm somebody who admits when I screw up. I don't think we've been biased in this campaign. I think I think that I think if you look for if you don't like Donald Trump, I can walk you down and show you 
many hard-hitting stories we've done about Trump University. Yet I still get emails from people saying, when are you going to write about Trump University? And my response is, we didn't do it today, but Google New York Times and Trump University. You're going to find a lot of stories. People want to see you write the same story every day every sometimes. Day. Yeah. You know, and from the people who support Trump, they say, when are you going to do a story about Hillary Clinton and Benghazi? The three most complete stories ever published on the subject of Benghazi were published in the New York Times. One by David Kirkpatrick in the aftermath, in which he actually interviewed some of the participants. And then a two-part series we published last year by Joe Becker and Scott Shane that was, I think, the most dramatic and full-bodied retelling of everything the Obama administration did right and wrong in, in Libya and also... Um, in particular, her role. I, so I, I think we've been fair. I, I sometimes lose my temper with the critics. If they, I mean, <laughs> He's been known to curse <laughs> on the record publicly. <clears throat> Eileen said I couldn't yeah. repeat any of the stuff that I said. So um, I love the fact that people so believe and feel attuned to their news organization that they feel they can have a conversation with the editor. And I really try to respond to him. But every once in a while, you get one that catches you on the wrong day that's nasty. And you respond in a way that you regret the next morning. Every nasty email I've, I've written to somebody has found its way on Twitter. So. It's funny how that happens, right? Yes, it is funny. How so it's interesting, too, because we get, like, you guys are um, your Hillary lapdogs, but we broke... The email yeah. story, right? And we broke the FBI. Which, by the way, so I'll, I'll, I'm going to say this, and people will start throwing things at me. The email story that we broke that was so controversial, and that, in fact, I apologize for the editing of it. Actually, if you go back and look at it, it was accurate. Well, the story said, and it was true, there were the, it was a criminal investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails. What we didn't quite explain well enough and I don't think people wanted to go into the weeds, was that the FBI only does criminal investigations. We just didn't do a good job of explaining it. But I think if you go back and look at that story, as controversial as it was, when, when I was on this panel with Woodward, he pulled me aside and he said, why did you apologize? That story was right. And I said, well, at the time, we weren't quite so sure. It's not, it doesn't count that it got right later. So... That is an interesting answer. <laughs> no, that's definitely, I, I haven't heard you say that before, so that's yeah. a little news. Yeah. You, you insiders got it here first. <laughs> All right, so we are going to go to questions now. I'm sure you have some. Ask only questions of Jim. <laughs> here? Um, I'm one of these people who grew up believing that the New York Times and Walter Cronkite were the, the words of truth, and, that's, and that it was your job to curate all of the nonsense out. And I'm really incredibly worried that we've become this world where anybody who has a Twitter account can create a story or Photoshop a picture or put a video on that <clears throat> goes around the world and people believe it because they saw it on the internet. Right. How do you combat that? We remain a usually edited institution, a usually questioning institution. I mean, there's a, without going into detail of what the story was, when I, when I left town Saturday, I had a printout of a story um, that was scheduled to run the Monday New York Times, and I just didn't think it was ready, and I 
woke up the next morning and there was a long email from Matt Purdy, who's one of who's one of my deputies who runs investigative reporting with a just relentless series of hard questions about the story. And that's what we do. We're still very aggressive. We're not going to lose that. We, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, I think we have to be open to the world, but I think that we also have to, to honor the trust that people have in us and, and work really hard to make, to make sure we remain edited. And the other thing is when those stories catch fire, the, the false stories, we do a lot of truth squatting. So Hillary was in the internet world being followed around by a secret service agent who may have been secretly a doctor with a syringe. And a little reporting found it was a flashlight. You know, right. Now she falls ill and everyone says, oh, it's a cover-up. But right. you know, we right. can just keep trying to truth squat. I'm interested in uh, to what extent you're envisioning that you're individualizing content that different users see on their front page. So you now have tremendous information through digital users, right. through tracking. And to what extent do you envision that my front page is going to look different from my neighbor's front page in the future? I think that one that the next revolution in um, presentation of news is going to be what we call personalization, which is that your front page on the phone will look different from your neighbor's front page. But... It will also have because it's because you chose the New York Times. It's also going to have Syria. It's also going to have the presidential election. But your front page may have more. If you live in Chicago, more stories about Chicago. Your front page, if you love football, may have more stories about football. Your neighbor's front page may have more stories about something else. Whenever I say that personalization is the wave of the future. People get nervous, except nothing was ever more personalized than the print newspaper. It's a myth that anybody, I mean, how, do we re, how did we read the print newspaper? I got my print newspaper in the morning. I usually took, before I actually became the editor of the New York Times, I took the art section first. I gave the front section to my wife. Maybe my kid took the sports section. Maybe my kid tore out the USC story because he went to USC. It's always been personalized. But it'll always have an overlay of the significant public service mission-driven stuff. Otherwise, you wouldn't pay all that money to read us anyway, right? The, the title of this uh, session is All the News That's Fit to Print, and I think it's a marvelously elegant, wonderful slogan that I've always enjoyed seeing. Maybe you'll have to change it to all the news that is fit to publish uh, rather than print. <laughs> but my question really is, uh, in the past, I think that this was probably a reflection of truth. Are there some stories that are not fit to publish today? Um, you know, I think it was never a reflection of truth. The newspapers of a certain era printed sermons from churches. I once looked at an old New York Times in the in the archives where the lead story was the British budget being announced. I mean, newspapers, there was a sense that they were trying to publish a lot of stuff. We still publish a lot of stuff. And they were selective then and were selective now. I'm going to argue that a newspaper that prints deep reported pieces about corruption in Latin America and deep reported pieces about politics and government, which those newspapers did not publish, by the way. They published 
if you ever pick up the New York Times is of the 1920s, they were like 15 stories on the front page, everything from new chairman named at Bank of America. I think that the trade-off of losing some of that stuff, which I think actually was the minutia of, of powerful people, in exchange for deeply reported stuff, I think newspapers are better for it. Nobody ever really was the newspaper. Newspaper of record, by the way, is a phrase that derives from the era when governments were required to publish certain things in the paper. They were required to publish, you know, everything from minutes of certain meetings to, you know, things that were to bank accounts that had not been claimed. That's where the phrase comes from, and there's just less and less of that. How much pressure do you guys feel to respond to clicks and likes, and how do you avoid the natural tug of lowest common denominator if you do? That people's tastes, in the, the public's tastes is not as good as yours, and that's what we trust you for. <laughs> but clicks and likes, and you've already cited you them just here. Had, you had them at that. <laughs> Aside from the suit. Um, to what degree are you preserving something and curating versus responding, even economically, to stories that are quote-unquote popular? This is actually a subject of debate in the newsroom. I, when I became editor two and a half years ago, I began the process of making sure that the newsroom understood what its audience was and what people read. And that was not designed to chase clicks. I think anybody who reads the New York Times and what we cover would see that we don't really change. I don't, I'm not sure Kim Kardashian's name has. I'm sure it's been in I've the written name. it twice. You've written it? Well, okay. <laughs> he, do, he does it, but, but I mean, you're not. The New York Times, that's not what the New York Times is in the business of doing. All that said, I do think people come to us to edit and curate. I am interested in what people read. Remember, the only way you fulfill your mission is if you read. It just happens to be true. But I don't spend a lot of time. I don't want a newsroom that chase click, chases clicks. I do want a newsroom that's aware of, here's how I use audience information. If you cover Asia and you know that stories about Asia are read at a different time of day than stories about New York, why would you not put the stories about Asia online when people in Asia can read them? If you know that political stories tend to be read at 7 in the morning because it's when people start their day, why would you not put your political stories up at 7 in the morning? That's how I regard the use of, of, of audience information. Um, and I guess I'm kind of of mixed mind about it because we've all had to learn, like, yeah, we have to find, we have to, we're going to go under if we don't give, find our audience and we can see now what people want to read and we have to cater to that to a degree. Um, I would say there's more pressure than ever, though, sometimes to match things that are out there. And so sometimes we at the New York Times, and I've worked at almost every paper in the city, New York Post, New York Daily News, you know, and we are very, we've always been much stricter about what we cover. And there are times when we will make a decision that this story, we don't feel right about it. It needs a lot more reporting, and we've held off, including people have come to us, and I've lived through this <clears> recently, <throat> with something that's a really hot story, but our standards do not allow for it. So we pass on the story under certain conditions, and someone does it the next day, 
and then there could be pressure within the paper. Why aren't you doing that? <laughs> you know, well, we decided not to do this right. based on our own judgment and standards, and that I think will be a struggle. We're just going to have yeah. to. That pressure existed when I was a twenty-year-old reporter in the West. It's just the pressure to compete is right. But the clicks add to it, right? Yeah, that's right. And that's I think right. it'll have to just be an ongoing debate every time. And I actually don't really want reporters chasing clicks. What I, I I want reporters aware of their audience and to think about who they're writing for. I mean, look, one of the great sins of my era of reporters was that we wrote for our sources. I mean, right. one of the great sins of Washington reporting 30, 40 years ago was that people didn't write, I mean, the old you know, Brahmin Washington reporters for big American newspapers wrote for members of Congress and what they wrote stories and in the reason it's the reason the people who broke Watergate, by the way, were not the old political establishment reporters. There were two police reporters. The old political establishment one of my worst and I will not mention the editor, but one of my worst experiences at the New York Times is I did a an investigative piece about Phil Graham of Texas when he was the senator about about how he financed his um, weekend house with the help of an SNL operator who he did a favor for. And one of the Brahmins of American journalism lobbied against my story um, because he thought, I don't know what he thought, I just think he thought those were the, that's the way business is done and it's because he wrote for his sources, I wrote for my readers. And I think you do. it's worth knowing who your readers are, and it's worth being reminded that you're not writing for your sources, you're writing for your readers. I know who it is. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't say it. I've uh, got the question about the differences between, in full disclosure, I'm a commentator analyst for CNN, uh, and I can tell you flat out that we do cover Trump more than anyone else because he makes us money. <laughs> I'm not saying you do. You said you don't, but I know what we do. My question is, when you mentioned video uh, and your video uh, uh, organization in your newsroom, uh, can you tell us all in the audience, and me particularly, how is that going to differ from eventually, if you grow that unit, how is that going to differ from what the audience can tune into on MSNBC, Fox, CNN, and so forth? Um, forgive me if I sound a little bit arrogant. Um, I think that we will be better. <laughs> But You're going to be I, tired of how great we are. You're going to be sick of <laughs> We're going to be huge. Yeah. We're going to be huge. Here's what I honestly think. I think that we, the New York Times, and I, and, I th and I think I've earned the right to say this because I beat my paper up enough. I think the New York Times has so high an IQ because it has so many people around the world and in places where nobody else is. Um, I mean... We will be the last ones to leave Afghanistan, and we're not leaving Afghanistan anytime soon. Um, we're just in places nobody else is. I think we, because we have so many people out in the world, I think we see stories earlier than others. And I'll, and I'll use an example. Um, for me, the turning point in video was the Ebola story, because it was the story where I where I first realized the power of video, and it was I was sitting in my in the office next to mine, and the video team screened for me. We had already done; I had already ordered up an entire science section devoted to to Ebola and how Ebola actually arrived on the world scene, how it was born and created. And then in comes 
this videographer with this video of a family bringing their kid to the American hospital and there was no room for him and he's writhing on the ground. And I looked at this thing and I said, this is different. I couldn't do this when I was a... I think the combination of, first, it's not just video, it's video combined with multimedia, which I think is new and different. But I also think that the fact that we're so many places... So I'm, I'm not pitching the New York Times as the be-all and end-all of video. I mean, you know, I'm not pretending that we will have as much video as CNN. I think what, I, what I'm pitching the New York Times is is the greatest combination of video, multimedia, and words. And my argument is, is that combination that makes that will make us special. Uh, I was I'm nervous about clickbait. You've kind of cleared that up. Uh, I'm nervous about business intruding in on the editorial side. Did you read the the blow up in the, the weekend with the public editor? Liz Spade this weekend, where she uh, spoke about false equivalents. Oh, yeah. yeah I'm yeah, very yeah. worried about that, too, so maybe you can respond. If you, did you read the almost 600 comments? I've never seen this in my life. I read, I read the piece and I read the comments. First, I'll, I'll, let me assure you about one thing, which is economic. There is no economic interference in the newsroom. I mean, there's no... I, report, I don't report to the chief executive officer. I report directly to Arthur Sulzberger. The economic realities of the news business are real. We are, the New York Times is in the middle of an experiment unlike any other news organization in the world except maybe for the New Yorker. And so far the experiment's been successful, but there's an asterisk. The experiment is, can a news organization that builds its entire economic model on quality make it over the long haul. And so far it has, but that's the big experiment. I mean, David Remnick um, gave an interview in which he talked about how great he thought the New York Times is, and he also said in the interview, but he worries about its economics. What I would say to David is, I, first I agree with him, I think the New Yorker is fabulous, but I also worry about its economics. Take that, New um, Yorker. No, I didn't, <laughs> I actually didn't, I didn't mean it, I didn't mean it as a rebuttal at all. I think he's right. I'm worried about his economics because I think The New Yorker is just fabulous. I mean, it's an amazing experiment. Nobody else is. We are, we, are not, um, we are not chasing clicks. We are not selling anything other than a great news report. And we're betting that we can, and we've been betting for 150 years or whatever, but we're still betting that that will work. I actually thought Liz's column was right. I thought her column was right. I think essentially what she was saying was she was arguing against false equivalency. She was saying, look, we also do have, in fact, have a responsibility to write probing stories about Hillary Clinton. We cannot get away with saying Donald Trump is a more destructive candidate and therefore we will write more stories about him and fewer about Hillary Clinton. Let's say, as I suspect many readers of the New York Times believe that's true. To me, that's the height of arrogance. Let's say we justify doing it this time because Donald Trump is a particularly difficult candidate. So what about next time and the time after that? And eventually you wake up one day and you're Fox News, right? Which is you, you have decided you're going to cover the hell out of the candidate 
You're going to beat up the candidate you don't like, and you're going to elevate the one you do. Here's my prediction. Fox News will not be here 10 years from now, because that's a short-term model. It's already starting to, to implode. That's a short-term model. That's a model built on the anger of a generation. That's not a sustainable model. And some of the criticism about that comes at us about our Hillary coverage in particular, I do not think I would get we would get the same criticism if it were against that whoever the criticizer is, whoever's making the critique, if it was against the candidate that they like their the view would change. You know what I mean? So things that they don't want us to do, don't why do you need to see her emails? Well, I know that that was a different argument from the same person when it was George W. Bush. So if you start wanting, you know, and we can't give in to that kind of pressure, but if you start wanting us to change our behavior based on your political preferences, you're going to regret it next time around, potentially. How about right here? So I'm informed this is our last question, and it's sadly, sorry, folks, going to be over here, but good for you. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Dean. Uh, I imagine today's Monday. You know what's in Wednesday's newspaper. I mean... 80% 80% of it is filled. What do you do on a daily basis? What are the decisions that you make? Thanks. I actually don't know everything that's in the Wednesday paper because I don't know all the news. What I do day to day, you know, my bad days are when I spend too much time up here. Um, not not with you all, but, but you know, on, on the executive levels in meetings. I mean, I, I'm not only the editor of the New York Times, I'm I'm an executive of the Times company and I have certain responsibilities. You know, we have a board meeting this week. Um, those are not my favorite ways to spend my time. My normal day when I'm really doing my thing is I get up early in the morning, I read the New York Times thoroughly in print and on the phone, phone first. I get into the office just before the 9.30 meeting, which sets the tone of the day. I mainly run that meeting and turn it into a discussion about coverage. In my fantasy days and they're not always like this i run around getting to talk with people like jim about the stories they're working on and um that's that's the way i spend my time um when i can not spend all my time up here on business side stuff so you're kind of jealous of us i'm i am i am one of the one of the prices i mean this is my second time as an executive editor and you you are a leader of the whole company not that i sell ads but it's important to have the voice of the newsroom when the leaders of the company who are, who are talking about the future of the company are sitting down and talking about the future of the company, and I'm the voice of the newsroom. All right. Anyway. Well. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Times Insider Live event. I'm Stephen Hiltner. Times Insider delivers behind-the-scenes insights into how news, features, and opinion come together at The New York Times. You can find out more about our articles, events, and podcasts at nytimes.com slash insider.